0: Section 13 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Section 13 Death Grips Part 12 Let me hurry through it, and tell it as briefly as I can, for it is not a subject one cares to dwell upon with too great minuteness of detail. I shall pass over that miserable day at the office, when work was impossible to my maddened brain, and when my thoughts traveled but in the one groove of horror worn deep and smooth now with constant usage, and come at once to the night. I had taken home with me some manuscript that required revision, or rather rewriting, before it could be available as copy. It was the report of an outport contributor, and what news it contained was so garbled as to require a large amount of licking into shape, before it could be made presentable. Feeling unequal to the task during office hours, I had determined to rewrite it at home and run it in in the next day's issue. As I sat poring over the sheets, struggling to extract sense and coherency from the mangled contribution, Ethel, after making me promise faithfully to stop at eleven o'clock, whether I had finished or not, went up to bed. I finished before eleven, and had the satisfaction of seeing all the sheets ready for the compositors on the morrow. Then I, too, went upstairs. Ethel had fallen asleep, and I stood looking down at her with a thrill of gratitude to heaven for having blessed me with such a wife. The pure young face was turned slightly from me, and I could see the line of the dark lashes that touched her cheek and swept upward again. One bare, rounded arm was thrown upward in curves of graceful beauty until the little hand was lost in the loosened coils of fair hair beneath her head. Her whole attitude, in its youthful freshness and repose, whispered a witchery more thrilling than the charm of her waking moments. But as I stood watching the placid heave of her bosom, the fond smile faded from my lips, and I set my teeth, for a diabolical plan had commenced to insinuate itself into my mind, an impulse that made me quiver with terror and fall back a step as I fought frantically to thrust it aside. I knew perfectly what it was, knew too whence it emanated, and with the knowledge came the ghastly conviction that it was useless to struggle against the growing dominance, that I must obey, or, what was worst, yield up my body to the force that it might work its will. Not one detail of what occurred within the next twenty minutes was hidden from me. I could no more have concealed from myself what I was doing than I could have averted it. In the dining room stood a Japanese charcoal stove that we had bought as an ornament but which we sometimes used as a unique footwarmer on unusually cold evenings. This I now dragged out and ignited, creeping steadily back to the room with it in my arms. With fiendish deliberation I chose the most convenient place in which to put it, and carefully closed the doors, blocked up the chimney, and assured myself that the window was firmly fastened. Then I stirred the glowing embers to brisker life, piled them in a heap, and sat down to watch the effects of the fumes on my sleeping wife. I was going to suffocate her, to stifle her, as one smokes out a rat in its hole, and I had to stay here and watch her until the fumes became too dense to be longer endured, or perhaps to perish myself. Oh, the hellhound, the fiend incarnate. He was making me commit murder, murder of the foulest kind, and I helpless and powerless to prevent it. Ah, why had I let him live to draw another breath when I had him for the moment in my power there in the gardens? Why did I turn and fly to save my own miserable life and so ensure the destruction of Ethel's? The insidious fumes grew denser. I rose from my knees beside the furnace, where I had been fanning the charcoal into a fiercer glow, and contemplated it from a safer distance. In the lurid glow of the embers, I thought I traced the vile features of Rawdon looking out at me with his sardonic leer. I could even trace in the gray ash on the upper pieces the bristling, sandy hair, stiff and erect, as I had too often seen it. Once I almost shook myself free of this frightful obsession and ran forward to the brasier, But my purpose was changed before I reached it, and I but stirred the glowing embers afresh. The fumes grew heavier still in their deadly pungency. Ethel stirred slightly and allowed her arm to sink to her side. I watched her with bated breath, fearful she might wake. The room was becoming untenable. I retreated slowly toward the closed door. I would gladly, had I been allowed, have laid myself down beside my girl-wife and the little child yet unborn, and have shared their fate, but the inexorable force prevented me. I must leave them, must close the door, and leave them there to die while I preserve my miserable life until such time as the scaffold claimed it, and the world branded me with the blood of my young wife. I reached the door and stood there swaying to and fro in anguish, a terrible struggle going on between my own will and this that was ruling my body, such a struggle as I had never made before. May God shield any conscious being from such a one again. And while I stood rocking thus, in the agony of impotence, Ethel stirred once more. They say a person suffocating from the fumes of charcoal sees visions of wondrous beauty. I do not doubt it. For as I gazed, Ethel turned in her sleep and smiled. Her sweet face was turned full towards me, and while the ghost of that smile of ineffable peace still lingered round the corners of her mouth, I felt something go like a ripping seam behind my ear. It was freedom. It was the swift transition from obsession to free will. My brain reeled with the joy of the thought as I clung to the door handle for one brief second as stunned and inert as I had been before under the influence of the Force. The next, the intense desire for action, tingled its way sharply through every fiber of my body. I sprang forward and dashed my fists through every pane of the window in rapid succession. Then I bounded back to the door, threw it wide open, and tore the rug from the chimney where I had stuffed it. Lastly, I seized the brasier of glowing charcoal, regardless of my searing flesh, and dashed it with all my force through the broken window, tearing away with it the useless framework. The crash aroused Ethel from the lethargy into which she was sinking. She opened her eyes languidly and looked around. The gas jet was still burning low but gradually brightening under the in of sweet fresh air from the shattered window. She looked around in bewilderment, slowly raising herself on her hands. As she did so, the coils of hair became unfastened and fell about her shoulders in a glorious cascade of shimmering bronze. Her nightgown had slipped from one bare shoulder and her bosom was heaving quickly. I sent one wild prayer of thanks to heaven as I saw her bosom heaving. My eyes were fixed upon her face while my fingers fumbled in frantic haste for the bottle of chloroform I kept in a case of drugs I had used for killing and curing the natural history specimens I had been accustomed to send to an enthusiastic friend at home. The look of bewilderment was giving place to one of terror in the eyes of Ethel as I rose to my feet. Her voice was pitifully weak and strained, and she could scarcely articulate the words as she asked, "'What is the matter, Harry?' and a moment after, "'Harry, where where are you going?' "'Nothing. Nowhere!' I replied quickly. Ethel, I am going out. Try to think as lightly of me as you can. As I reached the door, I glanced back. She had thrown her hair back from her eyes, and was striving to get up, while the bewildered look crept back into her eyes at her unaccountable weakness. End of section thirteen.